Hi, I'm Carl Fielder, and this is not another empty suit. So great, thank you very much for coming in, Klaus. Um, maybe you'd like to introduce yourself and your role uh, to start off with. Right, well, it's a pleasure to be here, Carl. My name is Klaus Konzelmann. I've been working now for 28 years with the Nestle group of companies. Uh, I've been for more than 10 years in charge globally of environmental sustainability as well as uh, health and safety, uh, which was a fascinating uh, period uh, to be in there. And for the last almost five years, uh, I've been now based here in uh, Dubai uh, and I'm leading the manufacturing and uh, water sustainability uh, efforts for the bottled water business of Nestle. So for Nestle, you are Mr. Sustainable, is that right? Well, no, I mean, uh, I think the ultimate Mr. Sustainable is our CEO and our chairman because uh, they're really leading there from the top and that makes roles like mine uh, uh, so easy because okay now I've got more of a regional role and I'm focusing more broadly than just sustainability and I think that's exactly how it should be uh, that sustainability is not a specialist uh, job for some individuals uh, but that it's broadly embedded uh, throughout the company. Now obviously it needs some specialists to coordinate and to drive the effort but ultimately, I think everyone in Nestle has sustainability, and when I say sustainability, I really mean long-term orientation, and that's what I think sustainability is all about, that we don't cut corners for short-term profits, uh, but we're there for the long-term. And Nestle has been now, was founded more than 150 years ago, uh, and our CEO says, well, we're making business not for the next quarter, but for the next 150 years, uh, and uh, you know, to make sure that uh, uh, also, our children and grandchildren uh, have a great future. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But first, this isn't the first time you became interested in sustainability, is it? No, in fact, yeah. It's, um, I grew up in uh, southern Germany in an area that used to be the center of the textile uh, industry there at the time. Uh, most of that is now gone to Asia and uh, other parts of the world. And there, there were no wastewater treatment plants around at the time, and I was living just next to a local river that changed color every single day several times, uh, depending on what was uh, fashionable there. And uh, that was part of what ignited my interest there. It, in Germany, there is also like a, a, high, a high school student competition uh, that, uh, that encourages uh, young people to, to do scientific experiments. And I did some experiments uh, on how these uh, colorful rivers uh, would impact on uh, microorganisms. Uh, that's how I got into environmental science uh, uh, there right at the beginning. And that was like 10 years ago? That was when I was about 15, 16 years old, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, so about 10 years ago, right? <laughs> a long time ago. Well, that's good. And then you read a book. Yeah, in fact, yeah, probably if I think back, the, the, the one book that, um, that impacted me more than any other book I have read is Limits to Growth. And that was published back in 1972, which was the same year where the first uh, United Nations Conference on the Human Environment took place in, in Stockholm. And I read it probably around 75, 76 uh, in those years. And it really kind of impressed me uh, that in a in a finite world, it cannot be possible to grow indefinitely. Now, a lot of those predictions have turned out to be wrong uh, because the early computer models uh, weren't so good uh, and obviously the world adapted. But ultimately, I think the core of that book uh, that we cannot have 
resource-based growth indefinitely, yeah, that we need somehow to de-link resource growth yeah, and to get to a circular economy, that was formed already in those years yeah, and which impacted and also later on my, my choice of uh, what I would study and yeah, what I would be doing in, uh, in later life. But isn't that challenge of <coughs> resource restriction, isn't the challenge of resource restriction the fact that it's ignoring the progresses of technology? I mean, we are definitely getting more wheat per hectare now. We're definitely getting more rice. Uh, we're able to farm better. We're able to exploit the resources better using technology. Right. Isn't technology going to be the solution to this? Well, it is definitely part of the solution. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the uh, so-called iPad uh, um, equation uh, that uh, was around about 71, 72 developed uh, by some American uh, researchers. I stands for the impact, uh, the, the impact on the environment, which is, and it's a simplification, uh, but I think it, it helps a bit to frame your thinking. It's um, a product of population, population size. Uh, obviously, population uh, has tripled uh, since I was born, uh, back exactly 60 years ago. And uh, then it is affluence. Uh, it is a difference whether an American consumes or a South Indian consumes. Uh, the environmental impact is, is totally different. And I mean, we still have population growth. We also want that people become more affluent. Uh, so the third part of the equation, the T in the IPAT, uh, is technology. But technology, I don't think, is powerful enough to outweigh the increases we have on environmental impact uh, by the product of population and, uh, and affluence. And to jump forward, I mean, this is the whole point of the denialist movement at the moment, the people that are saying climate change isn't real, or if it is real, we'll deal with it. There'll be technology that'll come along and fix it. There'll be new supercars, there'll be new battery technologies right. and everything. I think I'm, I'm agreeing with you that technology enhancement improvement is very, very good, and there's a lot of very capable people right. out there. But A, we've got to throw everything at it. We need all of the technologies. Right. And also the amount of impact they're going to have is still not going to be enough if we carry on wasting the resources that we've got. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there is, uh, I think it was back in the 18th century already, or the beginning of the coal industry, uh, where an Englishman called Chevens uh, um, sort of realized what is now known as the Chevens uh, paradox, that the more efficiently coal is being used, the more coal in total is actually being consumed because it became more accessible, more affordable uh, to the masses. And that's exactly the same we see today. I mean, when I was a young man, flying uh, was really a luxury. Uh, we couldn't really do it. Uh, today, uh, with uh, these low-cost uh, uh, carriers and so on, you fly for next to nothing around the world. Uh, so it has created much, much more demand. Uh, so even so, the f flying per passenger kilometer today is much more efficient. The total impact of the airline industry, just to pick on one, uh, which uh, everyone I think is familiar with, uh, is, uh, has massively uh, increased. Now, that's why I believe that efficiency gains obviously are absolutely necessary, uh, but they are not sufficient alone to get us out of the uh, dilemma and the challenges we are in at the moment. So let's come back from that sort of macro problem of, of what the world's going to do about it. Back to Nestle. So Nestle recently, in September last year, made a commitment to go for uh, a zero carbon footprint by 2050. Net zero. Right. One of the first companies in the world to declare a net zero goal. First of all, do you think it's possible? 
Well, let's maybe come back to that a little bit later when it's possible, I think. And, and you know, we're not the only company. There are many other big companies in the meantime uh, who have similar goals. Uh, even governments now have declared those goals. So, so I think it's something that we need to have as an ambition. And we're certainly at Nestle, uh, we've got three focus points on how to achieve it. The one is uh, with our product portfolio. We want to shift our products to sort of in line with the consumer expectations uh, to, um, to a diet that, is, that has less of an impact uh, on, on the environment. And um, let's just take, for example, beef. Uh, in order to consume one calorie of beef, you need up to 100 times more resources, uh, the, the, the crops uh, to feed the, the, the cows and so on, than if you would directly eat a plant-based diet. And so switching to more plant-based diets, uh, that's certainly one big part of, um, of our strategy. That is linked to agriculture, in, for our entire greenhouse gas end-to-end, uh, -end, uh, from farm to four kind of uh, footprint, most of which we can only indirectly influence, 55%, so more than half, comes actually from agriculture. Uh, so to use products from agriculture that in themselves have a lesser impact on the environment, that's already part of the story. The other part of the story is to make agriculture uh, also uh, more environmentally friendly by, for example, not just reducing the impact uh, on, on, on climate change, uh, but for example, by absorbing uh, CO2 by uh, reforestation, by better land use uh, practices and so on. But I think most people would know Nestle for chocolate. And obviously many of your products have chocolate and the main component of chocolate, of course, is milk. So you've got large dairy herds that, although you've said are not directly within your scope of right. impact, I mean, you're the major buyer of the milk. So if you push back up the supply chain right. and say you want to reduce carbon footprint and help the farmers to come up with better ways of doing that, mm -hmm. then maybe you do have a way of impacting that. Absolutely, and that is really one of the, uh, the focus areas that we work together with the farmers to make also dairy farming uh, more environmentally compatible uh, to, to make, again coming back to efficiency partly, uh, to also today cows produce much more milk than they did uh, 40, 50 years ago uh, uh, and by changes even in the diet uh, for what, what cows eat uh, we can reduce uh, uh, the impact. The other part comes back again to reformulation of products. Not everything needs to be dairy from dairy cows. Uh, what uh, has become very popular over the last few years uh, is, uh, is vegan alternatives uh, to dairy products, which is uh, a big area, a big focus area of our uh, research and development network, uh, which is uh, like uh, about 2,000 people worldwide uh, who work on reformulation of products, uh, trying to develop uh, different or use different ingredients uh, for products that in the past were thought you could only make with milk, for example. Interesting. I also read somewhere that you've got about 400 factories, is that right? Right, yeah. So the size and scale of Nestle, I think, is not very well understood. I mean, most of us know about chocolate bars, but you know, how big is Nestle as an organization? Right, well, Nestle is the uh, largest uh, food and beverage company globally. Um, we sell every single day more than one billion consumer units around the world, basically active in every country uh, in the world. Uh, but despite that, uh, compared to other industries, the food industry is very highly fragmented. Uh, so we only represent about 1.8% of the packaged uh, food uh, that is uh, sold in the world. Now coming back to those factories, uh, that 
only about 5% of the end-to-end -end, uh, carbon footprint of our activities, and if we start with the farmers and go all the way to the, uh, the consumers, 5% is linked to our factories because food processing compared to some other industries is not very energy intensive and is a, a kind of a more uh, a low impact uh, industry. But it is the area where obviously we have the most direct uh, impact because we can decide ourselves what we uh, invest there and already one-third of our factories uh, today is, um, is run on 100% uh, renewable electricity. We do that either by um, having on-site like photovoltaic installations, like we've got three factories here in Dubai, uh, all three are now, one is already uh, operational, the two others are being e equipped as we speak uh, with photovoltaic, uh, or where that is not possible due to space limitations, uh, we also conclude uh, power purchase agreements uh, with uh, sort of long-term supply contracts. Uh, the biggest one we have is with a, uh, with a massive wind park in Mexico that powers 90% of our factories uh, in, in Mexico. So that's the that's part. And then we have also, I mean, you mentioned uh, uh, cocoa, coffee obviously is another big uh, product category for us. Uh, when we make Nescafe, uh, we end up with the spent coffee grounds. Uh, which normally as a consumer uh, you would throw away or maybe use for, 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 for your plants. We actually use them because it has a very high energy uh, content to uh, fuel the boilers uh, of our uh, factory. So it's kind of a self-sustaining uh, process using renewable uh, resources. Well, it, it's very encouraging for me because, of course, for a long time I've been saying that the solution to climate change is for large companies and this is one of the largest food companies in the world, large companies to actually show the way and to show people that actually we can make major changes to our carbon footprint without impacting the consumer. We can do the factories, we can do the supply chain, we can go back up the supply chain and impact all of our providers. But can that operate without government regulation? I mean, we've recently seen the complete failure, in my eyes, of the Madrid talks. Um, the governments don't seem to be able to agree on anything so, really, are we waiting for something that's never going to happen? Is industry going to take the lead? How do, what do you think about that? Right. Yeah. Now, absolutely. I mean, industry has to take the lead, but industry cannot do it alone. But before coming back to that, let me just also give you an example on the consumer end. You said that the consumer doesn't notice uh, the, the, the changes we make, and sometimes they are small changes, but collectively they can have quite a big uh, impact. About 15 years ago, uh, we did the first detailed end-to-end uh, uh, -end environmental life cycle assessment uh, of coffee. Uh, and we realized that with our portion coffee uh, business, uh, which is the Nespresso machines or the Dolce Gusta machines, the biggest carbon impact is the, um, the energy consumed by the machines when they're on standby. And because most consumers don't switch it off completely as it goes to a standby, and even so it uses relatively small amount of energy, collectively all these machines together worldwide, it's quite a, a big amount. So we redesigned the way we make this, uh, um, these machines and within a couple of minutes of inactivity, uh, they immediately get switched off completely. So not just standby, but really switched off. So you even hear a little click there uh, to, to hear that it's switched off. Now, originally our marketing colleagues uh, pushed back a bit there uh, because obviously they didn't want to inconvenience the consumer that they have to wait potentially a few seconds more until they enjoy their next cup of coffee. And, but that led to more creativity again, as you said before, efficiency gains and so on, which is absolutely part of the game. And, and today when you uh, switch on the latest machines, uh, by the time you 
pop your uh, capsule into the machine, it is already uh, up and running. And so that is exactly one good example, a very minor one, mm -hmm. uh, but we do many of these every single day uh, that contribute to improvements without the consumer. But my notice. point is that the consumer didn't notice, did they? You, right. you improved something because exactly. you had done the measurements, right. and then through your entire supply chain of all your products worldwide, you made an energy saving mm -hmm. without the customer having to do anything. Exactly. Yeah. And this comes back to my one of my main hobby horses, which is there's a lot of very well-meaning people out there pushing that we all individually recycle this mm -hmm. and we all individually do that. And while it's true that millions of times a little effort can achieve a big thing, I don't think that we're going to fix climate change fast enough if we try and change the way that people behave. Mm -hmm. I think we do have to change the way people behave, but it's not going to happen fast enough. And I think industry, right. with things like your example from the Nespresso machine, that can make a massive impact globally through a small decision made by a few people sitting somewhere in a right. laboratory somewhere and roll it out worldwide. I would take you on one more thing though. Um, all of the products that I see from Nestle are wrapped, and they're all wrapped in things that don't biodegrade. Mm. That surely must have a big impact on the overall planetary footprint of right. Nestle. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's an area that, especially over the last two years, uh, very much came to the forefront. I mean, historically, uh, if we go back to the 2000s, uh, our key focus area in terms of uh, environmental sustainability was water, because it is so important uh, to our uh, specific line of business uh, in the food industry, agriculture is responsible globally for 70% of water use and we are a big part of that. Then we need water in our factory in the same way you would use it in your kitchen uh, to uh, cook products, to, uh, to wash and so on. Plus then consumers at home would need water again. And we are also, we happen to be the, the biggest uh, bottled water company. And that's especially there where uh, the plastic uh, discussion came in. Um, and uh, it is a challenge, I, uh, you know, it's uh, clear to admit that. Even so, we have done a lot already in the past, like for example, light weighting of plastic bottles has come a long, long way. Uh, and, but we also have, uh, we've established earlier this year a research center specifically uh, dedicated to, uh, to packaging, uh, where we are working on new packaging uh, concepts that would include things like biodegradability, where biodegradability is not the perfect solution on its own, right? because then it uh, um, interacts uh, and interferes with recycling processes and so on. So there, there, there are many different solutions uh, that will have to come in the uh, recycling area. On the water bottle there with, uh, with PET, which is the one plastic that is very, very easily recyclable, and coming back to your example from before, uh, that it requires on the one hand companies to do the right thing, but it also uh, very much uh, is, I mean, very much rely on the consumer's uh, participation uh, and uh, the, the, the recycling or the collection of plastic bottles uh, is, is a perfect example there uh, because we depend on the consumers to do the right um, uh, sorting uh, of the uh, of the packaging material uh, at home, which obviously requires an infrastructure. That's why we're mm. working together with other competitors, uh, with the waste uh, uh, industry, with certainly also and coming back here now to the to the regulatory environment. It requires some regulatory frameworks in order to set up these uh, collection and uh, and recycling schemes. But one of the things, I mean, even with an organisation such as Nestle, that's really doing the right thing in so many areas is you have to prioritize. If you've done a full 
life cycle analysis of all of your products worldwide, which I'm sure somebody somewhere has all the numbers. Yes. When you see an organization like Extinction Rebellion or some of the other more vocal campaigns demanding that you take action on one specific topic, like for example plastic, surely you have to rank that in terms of what is your planetary impact from water or from methane production from the cows. Right. And you prioritize the thing that's going to have the most impact, not necessarily what's getting the most news coverage. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and I think that's one of the key learnings now in environmental science over the last 40, 50 years, that what may be good for one environmental impact category uh, may be detrimental to another. Let's take again these plastic bottles. Um, yes, plastic bottles have a detrimental effect when they get into the, the oceans uh, and uh, interact uh, with, uh, with marine life and so on. But at the same time, if we would go back to glass bottles, uh, which some people believe uh, that is the magic solution, the carbon footprint uh, of uh, glass bottles are significantly higher than, uh, than plastic. So it is not playing one material or one solution against the other, is to make sure that the overall uh, impact is being optimized. And in the case of plastic bottles, it is clearly collecting, that is our commitment, that no single uh, plastic bottle that we put, uh, or no, no single plastic packaging anywhere, whether it's plastic bottle or uh, anything else, gets wasted or gets uh, thrown out in the environment, but in a circular economy is being recycled. I think that's really the key uh, challenge there. But it also comes back to the point I made about prioritisation. Yeah. Um, I think we had a choice. You said 1972, the first uh, gathering of people discussing this. Certainly I've been looking at this since 89 and since 92, the Rio Earth Summit. Um, I think we've actually lost the opportunity now to try and address all of the problems mm. at the same time. And one of the things I've been pushing for is a prioritization mm. of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Right. At the end of last year, we saw the, in the UK, we saw this advertisement from Greenpeace that was hijacked by Iceland Foods mm. to say that we needed to stop using palm. Now, Nestle must be one of the world's biggest consumers of palm oil. I know you've done a lot towards sustainable palm. Mm. But one of the things that I was talking about earlier this year in some of my speeches is if we stopped using palm oil because that makes one of the sustainable development goals look a bit better, there are apparently 50 million people in Indonesia whose livelihoods depend on palm oil production. So one of the other sustainable development goals is to get rid of poverty. Absolutely. How are we going to get rid of poverty right. and reduce uh, climate impact from palm trees right. at the same time. We have to prioritize exactly. one over the other. Right. Now, I mean, these exactly are these trade-offs. Uh, and in, in, in the case of palm oil, it's not even only between uh, environmental impact and social impact. It's even within the environmental impact areas, because the one good thing about palm oil is that it is so much more productive uh, than all the other vegetable oils. So if you, and, I mean, when I came across this discussion internally more than 15 years ago for the first time, my immediate reaction there at the time was, well, let's get out of palm oil. But it would be a huge mistake because uh, replacing palm oil with other vegetable oils 
would require five to ten times more land mass, uh, which would be much bigger impact than on deforestation and climate change and, and, and what have you. So it's even within those different uh, categories where you have to uh, prioritize. And in fact, on palm oil, uh, quite, I think, an interesting anecdote was uh, um, back in 2010 in April, where we had the annual general meeting. Uh, and uh, we were at that time already in discussions with uh, Greenpeace on palm oil. Uh, they had first attacked some of our competitors, uh, so we were sure that they would eventually get to us as well. Uh, we were at the time the number three global globally uh, palm oil uh, uh, buyer there. And so we had this uh, annual general meeting, and just as our uh, chairman started to deliver his uh, address to the shareholders, uh, about 3,000 shareholders uh, sitting in that uh, convention center, I suddenly heard one of these uh, uh, terrible noises. Uh, I thought there was like Hell's Angels uh, driving into the convention center on the Harley Davidson, but it was not Harley Davidson's, uh, it was uh, uh, chainsaws, uh, it was guys from Greenpeace who had been hiding for several days uh, in, the, in the ceiling under the roof there uh, and were cutting through uh, the ceiling there, uh, emulating basically the uh, cutting down of uh, rainforests uh, with their chainsaws, uh, upsiled themselves, uh, and so it was much more interesting uh, to watch these guys up there uh, than what our chairman had to say at the time. But rather than what we would have done in the past, uh, we had many sort of skirmishes in the past with Greenpeace uh, and, and similar organizations, we actually embraced them because it is also not in our interest to cut down uh, rainforests. Huh? And we tried at that time to really work together with Greenpeace. Many people would say it's not possible huh, to work together with these kind of radical uh, non-governmental organizations. But I think it was quite um, quite a good collaboration huh, that lasted over several years. Huh? And for example, today, we made in 2010 a commitment that by 2020, all of our supply chains will be deforestation free. Uh, we are now at 77% uh, uh, year to date. Uh, we expect to get to 90% next year, uh, so the 100% target we will probably not, uh, uh, not make. But for example, 100% of the palm oil uh, supply chain uh, which we're using today is being monitored uh, in, a, in a very uh, innovative uh, satellite uh, monitoring uh, system uh, which we w was developed with the Forest Trust and, uh, and, and Airbus. Uh, so we see in real time uh, what's happening on the ground uh, and can uh, manage those things much better than it was uh, possible two years ago. I'm not in any way saying that deforestation shouldn't be stopped. I mean, it is a terrible, terrible thing. When you look at the carbon calculations, it's absolutely obscene what's happening. I mean, the human species is actually going in reverse when it comes to trying to save the planet by chopping down so much rainforest. But I was in Malaysia recently, um, not in Indonesia, it was on the main peninsula of Malaysia, and I went to see one of these um, palm plantations. And I said to the guys, you know, this is terrible. You must have chopped down so much rainforest to plant these palm trees. And they said, why do you say that, Carl? Before this was a palm plantation, this was a rubber plantation. Right. And it was actually you British that came over here at the start of the 20th century and told us to chop down all of our um, normal trees and plant rubber palms. And actually the palm plantations are a far better use of land than the rubber was. Exactly. And the palms are actually absorbing more carbon dioxide than the rubber trees were. So an actual fact, a sustainable use of that land, bearing in mind that if you like the climate crime was committed a hundred years ago, it's better to keep farming those palm plantations and absorbing and sequestering carbon 
on those lands than it is to to drop them down or let them go fallow or whatever else. Yeah. Fully, fully agree, and that's exactly uh, our strategy. I mean, uh, we're not against palm oil. On the country, I said we're the, the world's number three. Uh, the biggest user there. Uh, so we favor a sustainable uh, palm oil cultivation, also working with farmers providing technical assistance. We've got several thousand agricultural advisors around the world, uh, mainly in the coffee cocoa area, but also in our palm oil in other areas, to help farmers uh, to, to farm more sustainably. But what we don't want is that uh, rainforest uh, get uh, chopped down, right? and then we do everything to, to really stop uh, where that may still be happening. Uh, in some remote areas, and the satellite technology is one way of helping us. Excellent. It's another use of technology making a big difference towards right. climate change. So, we've discussed a lot of different things today. Do you think the future looks bright? Do you think we're actually going to be able to address climate change if we all work together and use all the technology? Well, I think it's working all together, which is, which is key. Uh, clearly, industry has the leading role to play. Uh, and uh, coming back, I know that uh, uh, you're very fond of the 1992 uh, Earth Summit uh, that uh, happened in Rio. In fact, around that period of time, I had the absolute pleasure and privilege uh, to meet with a person, uh, Stefan Smithaini, uh, who was uh, a big industrialist there at the time. He was on the board of directors uh, at Nestle there at the time. That's how I got to know him. And uh, he was the first president of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development uh, that was uh, created uh, because the Secretary General of the United Nations there at the time, for the first time in one of these intergovernmental uh, conferences, had invited industry uh, and business, the business sector, to be at the table, obviously not as part of the uh, negotiations, uh, but to, uh, to feed in. And um, I learned an awful lot from, uh, from Stefan there at the time because he was, his, his, his family wealth uh, was partly uh, based on, on building construction material and asbestos uh, was, was part of the equation there a bit. And so even he was the first one to ban asbestos uh, uh, from, uh, he's still accused uh, in several countries uh, and uh, has to stand uh, trials uh, for not having done uh, enough, uh, which is quite, um, uh, quite ironic and quite sad in a way. Uh, and so a lot of journalists accused him and said, look, you know, how can you pretend uh, to be the savior of the world uh, if you have uh, all this kind of uh, legacy? And well, at that time, most other industry representatives would have been defensive uh, and in denial and said, well, you know, but it's not that bad and this and this and the other. He actually said, okay, yes, you have got a point. Huh? In the past, business and industry has not always done the right thing. But let's put that aside for the, for, for the moment and let's see how we can work together. And I think that was a pivotal moment, uh, not just the Rio conference itself, but also the, the changing attitude on both camps. Also, the NGOs never wanted to work together uh, like Greenpeace did 10 years ago. Uh, 30 years ago, they wouldn't really even talk to us. Uh, so, but I think it took first a business leader to stand up and say, well, not everything we've been doing in the past uh, uh, was okay. Uh, but Let's be open, let's be transparent about what we're doing, and let's uh, commit to improvements. And I think huge improvements were made, uh, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning, uh, in many areas of efficiency and so on. The problem I still see here, very practically speaking, is that it's okay that leading companies lead also in climate change, uh, which I think we're one of those uh, doing this. 
But if you are leading too far ahead, uh, or if your followers are too far behind, you risk to incur costs more than your maybe smaller those competitors that are less in the limelight. In fact, our our chairman uh, he's got a, a nice proverb for that. He says, "Tall trees catch more wind." Uh, and we as Nestle being the tallest or the, the largest uh, food company, even so I believe our standards uh, are, uh, are much better than of many other companies. We're in the limelight because it's obviously more sexy for uh, Greenpeace to attack uh, a Kit Kat uh, being one of our flagship products uh, in the confectionery area rather than a, a no-name uh, smaller company. And so because we're so much in the limelight, we have to do more and things earlier than our competitors. Uh, but the problem with that comes if it is sort of what the British call the level playing field. Uh, that is why I believe we need legislation that ensures that there is a level playing field uh, and that also smaller uh, uh, companies uh, that are not so much in the limelight don't have that kind of free rider effect, uh, but that they are in a way forced to do the same things uh, as uh, uh, most of the larger companies are. I, I appreciate that's your perspective on how best to make, move things forwards, and I'm sure it's one of the answers. My own drive at the moment is to try and encourage all the entrepreneurs in the world that are so creative and so innovative to try to come up with more cost-effective yeah. solutions for large organisations such as yours, so that you don't have to suffer that cost penalty yeah. to be an early adopter. Right. So that actually being an early adopter gives you a price advantage over Absolutely. your competitors, yeah. therefore you need less yeah. government regulation. And that's what I'm trying to right. encourage. I think yeah. entrepreneurs need to unite. We need to all get behind the yeah. climate change initiatives and absolutely. we need to work more with large right. organizations yeah. such as Nestle. Yeah. But what I think is absolutely necessary in order to get to that kind of cost transparency as well is that today resources, whether it is agricultural resources, whether it's the cost of carbon, whether it's the cost of water, even air, uh, is not reflecting the true cost. And so the, 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 the users, the beneficiaries of these resources, being it initially companies, but then ultimately the consumer who buys those uh, products and services, uh, benefit short term from an artificially lower cost that is then either born, the, the, the damage is even uh, has to be carried by, by society through, through, through taxation, or even worse, by future generations. Uh, and that is why I believe that the, 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 the number one most important policy change which we need is to assign a true cost to, since we're talking here mostly, mostly carbon, uh, to carbon. And I think it's also encouraging there. Germany just uh, uh, very recently uh, has now uh, instituted a, a carbon tax that at the beginning they said it would be around 15 euros uh, per tonne, which would have been uh, far too low in order to drive any innov innovation actions uh, as you uh, advocate. Now it will be sort of it will increase gradually over the next year to between 45 and 55 uh, euros. And I think at that level, much more entrepreneurs will come up with innovative um, uh, examples like yourself. I mean, with your neutral fuel, I mean, you're exactly doing that. If there would already be a carbon tax uh, in other countries, biofuel made from 
waste or byproducts of other processes uh, that are not in competition to food production uh, would be even more competitive uh, than I believe uh, as your, the success of your business shows uh, they are today. Uh, and this kind of true cost awareness uh, of, um, of resources would trigger a lot of innovations uh, and would get us much closer to where, to where I think we will have to be. Klaus, thank you very much. I think that combination of innovation and big business driven by people such as yourself. I think that is the solution. I want to say thank you for your time today, but also for my children, thank you so much for all of the time you've put into this over so many decades. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Carl. It was a pleasure to be with you. you. Thank you.